Uh, well, good evening, everyone. As you've already heard, my name's Gavin. I'm sure I've met most of you, but if I haven't, please uh, grab me, push me, nudge me, whatever, after the service. I'd love to have an opportunity to get to know you, to have a chat with you, and to learn more about who you are and where you've come from. So the great Monsieur Charles Blondin, here's my French accent, I have been working on it for six years, originally known as Jean-Francois Gravelet, was a French acrobat who claimed his fame on September 14th, 1860 just a couple of years before my father was born. Blondin is famed as being the first man to stretch a tightrope 11,000 feet across Niagara Falls. That's almost three and a half kilometres, stretched at a height of, of 160 feet in the air. He crossed the falls several times and being quite a showman as he did so. First, he crossed with a balancing beam in his hands, and then to the crowd's utter shock and amazement, he threw aside the balance beam and started doing an acrobatic routine on the middle of the tightrope. The crowd grew larger. He crossed on stilts. He crossed blindfolded. He crossed, and trust a Frenchman to do this, with a portable stove and a, a pack of eggs so that he could get to the middle, make himself an omelette, and eat it on the tightrope. Gosh, the French. As each crossing grew more and more dangerous, the crowd was beside themselves with fear and excitement. Next, he crossed with an empty wheelbarrow. Then, he crossed with a wheelbarrow full of a sack of potatoes, roughly the same weight as a human man. Now, with thousands of fans, both on the American and the Canadian sides of the falls, Blondin asked the crowd whether they believe he could cross the tightrope with a man inside the wheelbarrow. Gallantly, of course, the, the crowd cheered and said, yes, we believe you, Blondin. We know that you can do that. Absolutely. Go ahead. To which he replied, very well then, may my volunteers step forward. Let me pray. Gracious Father, you have called all scripture to be breathed. You have enabled it to be handed down to, to us such that we may have it and read it today. We pray, Lord, that as we open it together, now that you may open and give, give me the words to say and of all of us the hearts and minds to listen and respond accordingly to your will. Amen. So throughout the story of Abraham so far, we've encountered a man that is living a life a little bit like a pendulum clock, constantly moving, ticking back and forth between remaining faithful to God and being lured by the temptations and uncertainties that plague him as being a human man. This week, we see Abram and his wife Sarai confronted with what could only be considered an absolutely absurd claim made by God the claim that he would bless these two with a child of their very own. You may remember as we started this series, Genesis 12 revealed God promising Abram that he would become a great nation. Abram's initial response to this was both faithful and loyal. He leaves his homeland, he leaves his security, and he leaves his livelihood behind. Without delay, Abram packs up and follows God's word. But it wasn't long before we saw Abram's fear 
before we saw his fear of man take precedence over his faith in God. Even by the end of chapter 12, fearing for his very life, we saw Abram lying about his wife, saying that she was not his wife but his sister. Because she was so beautiful, he feared that other men would become jealous and kill him. In another display of pitiful doubt, in chapter 16, Abram and his wife decide that, uh, that he should sleep with, his maid, with her maidservant, Hagar. Why? Well, they weren't getting any younger, and so clearly God needed just a little bit of help in fulfilling the promise. Abram was struggling with the apparent disparity between the perceived reality of his life and God's promises. He was confronted by what he could see with his own eyes, what to him was the tangible truth of his life, and blinded to the grand promises made by God. It's beginning to seem like we might have two polar opposites within the one man. At first it seemed like Abram was that hero, maybe that kind of character that no one could relate to, that he somehow possesses a level of faith to which no one could possibly aspire. But then, this same so-called father of the faith is seen to be no different to you and I. Abram's faith had its limits. He wasn't perfect. This superhero of faithfulness was just a man. As we've been working our way through this story, I've often found myself struck and challenged. Challenged by the reminders of the countless flaws in my own faithfulness. How on numerous occasions, the moment something appears, at least in my mind, to be going not on the right track, my initial is so frequently to seek my own solution, rather than to seek and to trust God. Sadly, it's all too easy for me to bring to mind times when I too have questioned God's ways. And when I have doubted whether he's truly in control. Metaphorically, if God asked us to climb into his wheelbarrow while he crossed a tightrope, would we climb aboard? Gallantly, most of us here would respond with a resonant, yes, I trust God with all of my life. Okay. What about your time? Do you trust him with your time? with your finances? What about the way that we use the internet? Even if we are so resolute in this faith, how does it manifest in our confidence to speak to others about his son? When we choose how we spend our time or our money or how we harbour our reputation instead of speaking his truth, do we trust God's will for our lives and his plans to work through us or do our own plans become just that little bit more important? And here we might be tempted to think, well, God is clearly just some cosmic killjoy, a giant ogre determined to crush all of our fun. But Jesus himself said entirely the contrary. Jesus said, I have come to give you life, to give you life to the full. Where we stumble is in believing that we know what life to the full means better than the God who created everything. And so God's response to doubt, 
Understandably, Abram and Sarai felt the weight of this uncertainty. And clearly God knew this. Take a look at his response. If you've got your Bibles open there, they won't bite you. Please hang on to them. Please open them. In chapter, seven, uh, sorry, chapter 17, verse 4, it says, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. At first glance, if you've been following us along, it seems like God is just repeating the promises that he made in Genesis 12. But in actual fact, he's taken that promise and he's taken it to a whole new level. In chapter 12, God promised to turn Abram into a great nation. But now as we read here, God promises to make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. Just to really underline the point there, God even changes Abram's name to Abraham. This isn't just some regal matter of giving him a a third syllable to his name. It's far more important than that. He's speaking to a culture where the meaning of people's name had great, great significance. Abram, his original name, meant exalted father. But he's now called Abraham, meaning father of many. Let's slow down there and consider the flow of events here. Abraham and Sarai, who now gets renamed to Sarah, are plagued with doubt. They are both described in this chapter as having laughed at the idea that God was going to give them a child together. And who wouldn't? Abraham is 99 years old, and admittedly, Sarai is a lot younger. She's a spring chicken. She's 10 years his junior at 89. But I've got to say, I have a grandfather who is in his 90s. There are many ways in which I would describe him. Slow in pace, selective in hearing, as bald as a chicken egg. But one way that I couldn't possibly describe my grandfather is being ready to have children of his very own. Perish the thought. It's understandable that they had such a good laugh at the absurdity of what God was promising here. It was for this reason that they took it upon themselves to let Abraham sleep with Hagar and bear Ishmael. This was done about 12 or 13 years before the part that we're up to tonight. But this wasn't what God had intended. God intended Sarah to give birth to a son. Faced with the absurdly impossible, Abraham and Sarah respond with incredulous laughter. But God responds with, I promise you not only this, but more. I promise that Sarah will give birth to a boy and you will name him Isaac, which incidentally means he laughs, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. See what happens there. As humans respond with doubt, God God responds with more. Now, I know we're not supposed to have a favourite verse in the Bible, but here's one of mine, just one. In chapter, six of, in chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews, writing to the New Testament Christians, refers back to this very promise made to Abraham. What the writer does is he drags this promise forward. He drags it through from the Old Testament all the way through Jesus and through into the New Testament and lets us hear it again in the light of the life and work of Christ. Verse 19 of chapter 6 of Hebrews says, We have this hope. 
a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered. Where Abraham and Sarah fell on their faces and laughed, God took a, long, took a look along the timeline and said, but Jesus. And now today, when feelings of doubt seem to eat away at our flesh, when cancer strikes, abuse, divorce, war, poverty and tyranny, when we look in every direction and we can't do anything but simply cry out, there is no hope, God says, but Jesus. In and through Jesus, we have a hope that is like an anchor so that when winds tear our sails, when lightning strikes our helm, our anchor remains firm in Christ. Do you have this hope? Have you ever actually taken hold of the hope that is found in Jesus and truly examined it for all that it's worth? Alcohol, sex, money, bigger cars, bigger houses, bigger holidays, all of these will bitterly, bitterly, horribly disappoint you. But in Jesus there is a treasure that is immeasurable in value. And if you should ever lose sight of how and why this is so worthwhile, hold it up to the light. Inspect this gem that we have. And by this, I mean pour over every word that we have about who Jesus is and what he means to you. You will find there and only there the very anchor that Hebrews is talking about, the very anchor that will hold you in any storm. How can we be sure? We know and can be absolutely sure of all of this because way back with Abraham, God gave a promise. Or to use another word, God made a covenant with Abraham. As he did so, God also gave Abraham a mark or a seal that would identify these people uh, as those set aside for God's purposes. In verse, 10, in verse 10, Abraham is told that every male among you shall be circumcised. <coughs> well, I almost feel like out of sheer respect, we should just observe a moment's silence for Abraham at this point. I mean, can you imagine the conversation when he gets home that evening and he has to front up to all of the men of his household? I'd say your interpersonal skills have to, at the very least, be cutting edge to approach such a topic. It doesn't get much better than that tonight, so bear with me. I mean, the conversation maybe would be, so gentlemen, you'll never guess what God told me today. Wait for this one. But faithfully, diligently, Abraham leads the men of his household into obedience to God's commands. And while there is much that we could say, about, say regarding the reasoning and history behind circumcision in the Old Testament, one undeniable truth is that it is an act that is irreversible. Abraham's people were to give themselves an irreversible, undeniable, identifying mark. Marking them as people who belong to God's covenant. Marking them as those who God had made the promises to. 
Abraham's response to this was a sign of great faithfulness. We see in verse 23 that immediately, without delay, he sets out to ensure that every man in his household was given the identifying mark. In the New Testament, this idea of circumcision is greatly a significant division. As the good news of Jesus was preached not only to Jews, that is Abraham's family, but it continued on to Gentiles, people who weren't part of the original family. And so confusion arose about the significance of this mark and of this ritual. And so Paul, in a letter to the Galatians, brings some clarity to the conversation. Galatians chapter 5, 6 says, For in Christ, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. For Abraham and his family, the mark of the covenant was to be circumcised and in this way identified as, God, as being one of God's people, the people to whom God had made all of these eternal promises. But as Paul writes, for us, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but rather the only thing that counts is faith in Christ working through love. Let's make sure we capture all of that. We are called to have faith, big, big faith. But not only that, faith that outworks in love. The challenge given to Abraham, the challenge given also to us, is big. It's a big challenge. But the promise that God gives us to back up this covenant, to back up this challenge, is utterly beyond anything that we can measure, anything that we could possibly ever imagine. So countless onlookers had plenty of faith in Charles Blondin. But few, indeed only one, had an active faith. It was only his manager who stepped forward and put his trust to action, to actually trust Charles with his life. To digress on the story, because I can see you're on the edge of your seat, both of them survived, although some of the guide ropes did snap halfway through. They were a little bit terrified at that point, but both Blondin and his manager saw another day. God challenged Abraham to have massive, massive faith. Faith that knew that nothing was impossible for God, even a child to an 89-year-old woman. Faith that casts out all fear. Faith that would see these two who were well beyond childbearing years ultimately have nations upon nations upon nations of descendants. Faith that would rise an eternal kingdom of followers to live in glory. Tonight, God challenges you and me to have the same faith. What we need to remember, though, is that we have seen the game plan. We know how God has won the battle. We now only have to have faith in the God who has won and to let this faith manifest in love. Every single thing that God has promised is brought true and brought to yes in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? And will you step forward in faith in the name of Christ? If your every thought, word and action stemmed from having such a faith, what would be different for you? This is the first time you've been invited to place your faith in God, 
and the work of Christ, then I implore you to investigate it further, maybe even tonight. Any one of our staff members who you've seen up here tonight would be happy, more than happy, to sit with you and discuss your questions and the challenges and the concerns that you may have. Otherwise, grab a Bible. If you don't already have one, grab one of the red ones from the pew. Michael can have it at me later on, but you can take that home, open it up to the book of Mark in there, and read it for yourself. Open it up to any one of the Gospels, but Mark is nice and short, so it's a good one to start with. If you've already placed your faith in Christ, consider afresh tonight, now, what it means to live set aside and marked by the covenant promise God has given us through through himself. Ask yourself, where is God leading me, leading you, to take a step in faith? Does trusting God mean a change of workplace? A change of friendship groups at school? Does it mean being bolder in sharing the news of Christ with your friends, colleagues, family, the dog, anything? If you, have a, if you are adopted by faith into the multitude of Abraham's family that is opened by Christ to all nations, tongues, tribes and races, then how does this guide your attitude to refugees, to the poor, to the person beside you on the train who smells or the guy who just cut you off in traffic? What about to that person who, for whatever reason, you find really hard to love? Through faith in Christ, we have been adopted by him so that, with Abraham, we have share in his inheritance, his inheritance of the eternal kingdom of God. Live this week as co-heirs with Christ. We are called to live lives that are marked and set aside for God's purposes. The circumcision that Abraham was instructed to commit was a cutting off and removal of flesh. And this, and the symbolism here is that the flesh represents everything that is fleshly desire, impurity and defilement in humanity. Dragging this idea forward into the New Testament, Paul tells in the book to the Romans, the letter to the Romans, that real circumcision is a matter of the heart. We are to cut out of our heart anything that is impure and so to live by faith for his promises. Let me pray. Our gracious and loving Father, we thank you for the story of Abraham, the, the father of faith. We thank you as the creator of faith. And we ask now for you, Lord, to give us help in having that faith. Help us to see what that looks like in our lives and to make the next step to follow you in faith. Amen.